Welcome to the Equipping You in Grace podcast, hosted by Dave Jenkins. The Equipping You in Grace podcast is a podcast about helping Christians develop a biblical worldview in a conversational tone about issues inside and outside the church. Now, for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. All right, guys, uh, welcome back to the Equipping You Guys podcast. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for this show. And today I'm joined by my good friend, Dustin Bench. Dustin, welcome back to the welcome back to my show, brother. Well, thanks very much, Dave. Uh, it's good to uh, see you again after quite some time, uh, but it's good to be back on. Thank you for the uh, kind invitation. Well, you're welcome, brother. It's good to have you back in the States and uh, good to be able to text with you again and, you know, have good conversation and fellowship with you. Mm. Well, uh, can you catch us up on uh, what's been happening in your life, marriage, ministry, and any you know upcoming projects that you want to tell us about? Yeah, well, um, I think quite a lot has happened since the last time that uh, I was on, which I can't remember exactly how long ago that was. Uh, but my wife and I have been living in Wales uh, for the past couple of years. Um, we moved over in very early 2020 for me to assume the position as provost of Union School of Theology in Southern Wales. Um, but in December of this year, uh, we moved back to the United States at the invitation to uh, become an associate professor of biblical spirituality and historical theology at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. And uh, this seminary is where I was before we moved to Wales, and so it's very much uh, coming home for both my wife and I. Um, and in fact, in God's uh, kind providence to us, uh, he placed her as well back in the same school that she was teaching in, in public school, um, that she was uh, before we moved. So she teaches first grade uh, at Portland Elementary School in downtown Louisville. And uh, we really love Kentucky. We love Louisville. We both grew up in Kentucky. And uh, we're we're just getting used to uh, Kentucky again, getting used to the United States and American life. And uh, it was just this week that we received all of our things from Wales, uh, all of our household goods, which were packed up about six months ago. Uh, so it's uh, really nice to uh, kind of be opening things, and we feel almost like it's Christmas again. So Christmas. But that's that's basically what's been going on. Uh, just getting used to uh, the job and the task here at Southern. Uh, I also actually serve as vice president of communications. So that keeps me busy day to day uh, and then lecturing in classes and so on. You're a busy guy. You're a very <laughs> busy guy. So inquiring minds want to know, and I, I post this on your wife's Facebook, but inquiring minds want to know how many of those boxes are actually your books? Well, we had about 300 boxes. Uh, that's all of our household items. Uh, around probably 75 or so are books. Um, I have another 75 or so books in a storage unit here in Louisville that um, was never moved to Wales. And so uh, we need to empty that storage unit, uh, but in all several thousand. And so I'm just looking forward to getting those back on the shelves and, and feeling like my office is complete again, uh, both here at the school as well as at home. That'll be awesome, brother. Great, great stuff. Well, um, you know, you have this new book out now 
uh, the loveliest place, the beauty and glory of the church. Uh, why did you write this book and how do you hope it'll be received? Yeah, so The Loveliest Place was released uh, last Tuesday, I think it was. Um, it was a bit delayed because of some paper shortages around the globe that had been taking place. Uh, but really, in short, uh, this title comes from a quote by Charles Spurgeon, uh, the great Baptist English preacher and pastor that we uh, we all love and know uh, very well. He defined the church as the dearest place on earth. And I wanted to talk about the beauty and loveliness of the church, which is not normally a conversation or a, a topic that we talk about in today's current times uh, when we seek to define the church or talk about the church. Um, but through the eyes of Christ, um, I ended up calling the book The Loveliest Place. Um, there was a time I wanted to call it The Dearest Place, but didn't really believe that dearest would be perhaps understood by a modern context uh, or even an American context. And so it was changed to The Loveliest Place. So I start out defining the church in the introduction to the book uh, because we can't shape a proper understanding of the, the purpose, the function, the mission of the church without a biblically robust uh, definition. Another important reason, uh, I believe, for building our understanding of the church on a biblical and theological definition is that most of our modern definitions never seem to shift from things like functionality and success to words like beauty and loveliness. Mm -hmm. And this is what I'm arguing in the book. Uh, we have great books on the church's form, methodology, structure, organization, membership, programs, all of the rest of it. But I'm wanting people to have affection for who the church is and why the church exists. So I'm writing for all believers who desire to serve uh, the church and those who may at times, I don't know, see her as ugly rather than beautiful. And I'm writing for those who may have been hurt by the church, those who seek to lead the church, and those who are tired of hearing such negative things about the church but want to serve her faithfully. So I'm shifting our focus in the book, merely from being introspective um, regarding who we are and rather seeing the church or viewing the church through, the, through a Trinitarian lens. What does God say about the church? What does Christ say about the church? What does the Holy Spirit say about the church? Mm, I love hearing you talk. It's awesome, brother. <laughs> very good, very good. I, I love the book. I think it's uh, I think it's just so rich for the reasons that you just described so so very well. Um, we we do tend to let's focus on the scars, the flaws, the failures, the mm. the mishaps of church leaders. Let's let's f dwell on you know not in a Philippians four eight sense on what is lovely, pure, and good like you're saying, mm. but on but on what is negative. And mm. that's not that's not what we're supposed to to do. So I really I really appreciate this book and i think it what it'll do is i think it'll it'll do what you said but it also do something else it'll reorient our affections uh, from mm. being so negative to being actually honoring to christ so I, yeah I well that's certainly that's certainly the hope yeah 
Yeah, it's it's good, brother. Well, speaking about that, how does the beauty of Christ relate to the church? Well, that that's a good question um, because I'm not quite sure we think in those terms. Uh, but if we were to go to Scripture, uh, the church's beauty and loveliness are are most vividly portrayed in uh, the brilliant metaphor of her being the bride of Christ. Um, in his instructions to husbands regarding the love that they should have for their wives, uh, the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 5, 25 says, Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And so what we see here is this stunning bride arrayed in snow white garments washed in the redeeming blood of Christ. That's very vivid in, for instance, Revelation chapter seven, when the bride is presented to her bridegroom and beholding her beauty in places like Revelation 19, a vast multitude cries out, the marriage of the lamb has come, the bride has made herself ready. Well, that bride is the church. And God gives the church to Christ as his bride. Now, the person who has most helped me to see this and understand this um, biblical concept is Jonathan Edwards, uh, the 17th century uh, pastor, uh, excuse me, 18th century pastor, uh, theologian in Northampton, Massachusetts. And, and Edward said this, um, that Christ and his bride are brought together so that the mutual joys between the bride and the bridegroom are the end of creation. Well, my goodness, that that phrase alone should cause us to stop in our tracks and be in wonder, love, and praise. And so as the creation of God, the church is the means through which the Father, God the Father, delights in Christ the Son as his object, as the object of his eternal love and divine happiness. And so the church's life is beautifully framed by her position as the reward to Christ for his suffering on the cross, mm. thus making Christ a worthy groom for his bride. Mm. And so there's a glorious union that takes place between Christ and his church that will never be severed. The two are joined together by God. God gives one to the other, and they are eternally satisfied in one another as they bask in the glory, majesty, and holiness of God. So the church is not beautiful because of something intrinsic. We're all sinners. We're all, albeit forgiven sinners, saved sinners, we're all sinners. We're still being sanctified. We've not yet been made glorified and perfect. So we have nothing intrinsic within us that would cause us to be beautiful. No, we are made beautiful because we are a reflection of another. We are a reflection of God through Christ. God gives us to his son as the reward for his suffering, and we are beautiful because of his righteousness, not our own. Mm, so good. Just going back to, you know, you mentioned Ephesians five. I mean, that's an imperative. That's, that's what mm. we have to do we're, because of who and whose we are. 
So that's, mm. you know, that we can become like who we were meant to be. Mm. And I think you just described that so very well. I mean, mm. just saying you're like, wow, this is, this is good. You're brilliant, brother. You know that. <laughs> you're very brilliant. Well, I, I'm not quite so sure about that, but I, <laughs> I appreciate that. You are, brother. Trust me. Trust me. Well, how can how can we help uh, people love Christ and the church? Well, that's another good question, uh, particularly in the age in which we're currently living when so many people say they hate the church or they don't like the church or phrases that I hear all the time. I, I love Jesus, but I don't love the church. Well, uh, I have to go back to Edwards uh, for this. Um, he savored the love of Christ. Mm. And he said everything that was contrived and done in the redemption and salvation of believers and every benefit that we have in Christ is, he said, holy and perfectly free, eternal and distinguished in the infinite grace and love of Christ towards them. That is everything we have as the church, everything we are as the church, everything we could ever hope to be as the church, everything is wrapped up in that free, eternal, distinguishing love and infinite grace of Christ. So th this infinite love is comprehensive. And it causes the bridegroom to rescue his bride from the depths of her sin and depravity by taking his lover's place at the bar of holy judgment. Greater, Edward said, than spinning the worlds into existence is this selfless act of sacrifice that makes Jesus both a savior to his church, a rescuer, of his church, but also the head of his church. So Christ is not only our savior, but he assumes our headship and our authority. So the church is intimately united to Christ as her savior and head. So to love Christ is to love the church for which he died. If you love Jesus, you will love the church. And to love the church is to love the savior who died for her. And so the two are inseparably, inseparable uh, together. The two are merged together and forged together in union at the cross. So how can we help people love Christ in the church? Well, we, we have to put on display that love. We have to put on display through the preaching of the scriptures, through piety, through holiness, through other means of grace. We have to put on display Christ, for he said, when I'm lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. And so we can't separate the two as if the church were some human earthly organization and Christ is some heavenly being. No, they are forged together in union as one. So to see one is to see the other, to love one is to love the other. Mm, so good. So good. I mean, we both know when, when Paul opens his epistles, He's addressing the church, mm. you know, and he calls them saints, you know, the people, mm. people of God bought, redeemed, uh, uh, adopted, loved by God because of Christ. And that that always struck me um, and always is something that I'm pointing out to people that come back and say, well, I don't need the church. I'm, I'm over here in 
at Starbucks or my favorite coffee shop. I'm over in the corner. And that's actually something I've been told. I'm over in the mm-hmm. corner and that's and that's my church. And I'm always like, wait mm-hmm. a minute, can we just have a little short Bible study here? Mm-hmm. And uh, I usually go to that point and then they're like, I don't want to talk anymore or something like that, mm-hmm. which, is, which mm-hmm. is always interesting to me when you when you're there to study the Bible. But Regardless, what you said is absolutely uh, 100% right, and it mm. should stir our affections uh, to, to, you know, because we love Christ, and for the reasons that you said, that should fuel our love for the church, so mm. really well said, brother. Well, you know, here's another topic that I don't think that we talk enough about. We need to talk more about, uh, but how do, we, how do we help those who have been hurt by the church? Well, um, it, it's necessary also to understand here what I'm not saying, what I'm not saying in the book. I'm not saying the church is perfect. I'm not saying the church is always going to do the right things and say the right things. I'm not saying the church will not hurt you. And sometimes devastatingly may hurt you badly, may hurt your spouse, may hurt your, your children. And all of this can lead us to being very apathetic and cold and indifferent toward the church. But I want to encourage every listener of this podcast and every reader who may pick up the book and read it. Don't view the church through the lens of God's people who are yet to be fully sanctified and glorified. And sometimes even unregenerate people who just call the church their home. But view the church through the lens that God in Christ views her. Mm. There's no perfect church. And as some have said, if it were perfect, it wouldn't be perfect once you got there because you're a sinner and you would make it ugly again. So Mm. don't expect a perfect church, but let that be an inducement to you to seek one who has said he will never leave you and forsake you. Keep your eyes on Christ and see the church as he sees her, as his beloved bride for whom he died. After all, ultimately, it's Christ we serve, isn't it? It's Christ we worship and Christ we glorify. And nothing should stop us from doing that within the context of a local church. And so I want readers here to finish this book with an awakened affection for who the church is in the mind and heart of God. And I want readers to begin to see the church as lovely and beautiful as Christ does. I want readers to give and be given in the service of the church that she may be presented to Christ one day without spot or wrinkle. So we have to turn our view Instead of looking inwardly, sometimes at our self-puny interest, that is, she made me mad. He said this about me. They did this. They didn't vote the right way. They didn't buy the right turkey for the church Christmas dinner. Whatever the case may be, whatever the situation may be, Christ died for his church. And therefore, we should give and be given for her service. Hmm. Amen, brother. Amen. Hmm. How does the presence and ministry of the Holy Spirit relate to the church? My mind, Dave, goes to um, John 14. Um, In comfort to his disciples, Jesus tells them that when he leaves and ascends back to his father, that he will send them a helper. And that's the way he defines the Holy Spirit, a helper. Now, the Greek word used there for Holy Spirit is 
parakletos, meaning one called to another side, one called to the help and the aid of another. It, it can also denote um, an intercessor, an assistant, or someone who pleads another's cause before a judge. It's a beautiful picture. And what the word does is it reveals to us this all-encompassing role of the Spirit within the body of Christ. The Holy Spirit is our helper, our intercessor, our assistant, advocate, comforter, counselor, and sustainer. My goodness, what love Jesus has for his church. Mm. He, he doesn't leave her to fend for herself with her own devices. He doesn't ascend back to heaven and say, well, I hope everything goes well for you guys. You need to be creative. You need to have success. You need to be witty, you know, and, and you need to use all the own, your own human devices and inventions to do what I've told you to do. No, surprisingly, he says in John 16, it's to your advantage that I go away. In fact, what I'm giving you, the revealed word of God in the Holy Scriptures, as well as the power, ministry, and presence of the Holy Spirit is better than if I were here physically. So any discussion on the church would be severely lacking without a close look at the presence and ministry of the Holy Spirit. Without him, the church never would have been founded. I mean, look at a book, for instance, like Acts of the Apostles. Well, I think it's probably titled wrongly. It should be Acts of the Holy Spirit. I mean, it's godly leaders would never be called. Believers would never be added. Gifts would never be distributed. Service would never be rendered. Growth would never be realized if it were not for the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And so without the ministry of the Spirit, there is no church. But with the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the church shines forth beautifully as he makes her his glorious dwelling on earth. Mm. Yes. I think it's Packer who said, you know, the Holy Spirit, the ministry of the Holy Spirit is not into thrills or something like that or mm. a show. I think mm. and I'm par that's Dave's paraphrase of Packer there. It's not a direct quote, but it, it's so true what you're saying, because it's not about a light show. It's not about, you know, all those things. Those things can be tools and instruments or uh, vessels or whatever you want to call them. But they're not if they're the main show, then you've missed the show. Um, mm. You've missed Christ and you've mm. missed the means that we have in Christ. And you both know, sadly, that's that's happening. Um, we we make the show the a show a program an event to capture people's hearts when we have one who's already captured our hearts and mm. has won our affections and mm. he's to be our treasure and delight and the holy spirit aims to what do what like you said point to christ in in the word and uh, to convict us to help us to to send us out i mean all those all those things so Mm. I think that's uh, I think that's all very good, and we could probably camp on that for a while. So, mm -hmm. <laughs> but um, 
you know, what is the best way for Christians to respond to error in their own local church with scripture? I covered this a little bit in the book. Um, just a couple things that I would say. Um, first, she must separate herself. That is, the church must separate herself and boldly refuse to be conformed to this present world. Uh, we have to consistently and constantly be uh, transformed into imitators of Christ. And so uh, how do we respond to error? Well, we shouldn't have any part of error uh, to begin with. And so um, this is somewhat how the church protects herself uh, from the onslaught of error that comes from our culture and society. Second, I think the church must proclaim the countercultural truth of God's word in love before a hostile and unbelieving world. And so the church needs to be consistently um, active in confronting various errors from the pulpit. It was said of the ministry of Martin Lloyd-Jones uh, at Westminster Chapel in London in the mid-20th century, that he basically did very little counseling because most of his counseling basically came from his preaching of the scriptures. And so he was so intimately involved in the lives of the people that through the preaching of the scriptures, he basically addressed every need and concern and, and difficulty that his people were experiencing. And so we respond to error in the church by standing boldly on the truth of God's word before an unbelieving world. Now, that doesn't mean we beat people over the head with a Bible, but we must lovingly herald every command, every commendation, and every condemnation that scripture gives. And then I would say um, very quickly, third, uh, the church must develop discerning wisdom, bringing every outside word captive to the obedience of Christ. Mm. And so we have to do this collectively. We have to do this corporately. Um, we, we can't, there, in other words, there's no individual within the church that should go rogue thinking, oh, I'm going to defeat error all by myself, or I'm going to front er confront error all by myself. No, no. This is the job of the full local church, from the pulpit to the pew. We must separate ourselves from being conformed to this world. We must proclaim the countercultural counter truth of God's word, and we must develop this discerning wisdom so that we know what is error and what is not. Yeah, I'm really glad for all the three of those points that you brought out, because especially third point, what I'm what I'm starting to see, especially online among Christians, really concerns me because you have Christians who say they're being discerning and they refuse um, any accountability. Mm. Um, and oftentimes what that means is that they're not in a local church at all. If you ask them if they're in a local church and but they want to be, quote unquote, discerning. Um, right. And they share now. Now we need to back up and say everybody is allowed to share their concerns and we need to hear those concerns. Mm. But part of being discerning in the right sense of the word is to literally in a first first Thessalonians 521 sense is to test, to examine, to analyze those things and then to see in an acts. What is it? 17 way if they're 
so, and then if they're so, to do in a First Thessalonians 1 way, to receive it with gladness and joy, as the Thessalonians did. And so what you're saying about the protection of the local church and, you know, the full local church testing and, and seeing and receiving is so, is so important. But my concern is that there are people that are doing that and then they're, they're just being quote unquote discerning without any accountability. And that is mm. absolutely uh, dangerous. Um, it can lead to a false uh, sense of uh, the wrong sense of humility, we would say, and, and pride. And uh, it's a big concern that I have. It's something that I want to um, address on this show in the coming days. And uh, mm. so, but I think what you're saying is just to flesh that out a little more is, mm. Sure. It's a big, it's a big concern that I see online. Mm. Do you want to, do you have any thoughts on that? No, I mean, I, I perfectly agree with that. And and I think that's um, part of the issue right now um, within the church is that we have so many people that have um, amassed some sort of platform because the social media has given them a voice and they have decided that they are personal gatekeepers of the truth. When in fact, most of what they say just really isn't the truth. <laughs> and most of what they say just really isn't careful discernment, but is mere opinion. And you have to be, as you've said, under the accountability of a local church in order to put yourself under the authority of the preached word, under the authority of accountability of elders and other leaders and mentors in the faith. And it's only then that we can help contribute corporately to the beauty of the church, to the loveliness of the church. Uh, the, the church is just not a, um, um, what, what would we call it? A discernment blog. You know, that, that's not what the church is. The church is, is a corporate body of believers sent to worship Christ, um, to glorify Christ, to be instructed and sanctified in the word and, and to encourage and mutually edify one another. The church is not just about discernment, but uh, that is part of it. And so um, we have to do this corporately if we're to be effective in the world in which we live. Mm. Amen, brother. Well, how important is gospel-shaped worship in our local churches? Gospel-shaped worship is beautiful, um, but it's beautiful only when it flows from a mind, in, a mind informed uh, by truth and a heart willing to abandon everything else for the sake of communion with God. Now, it, it doesn't take long to, uh, in one's reading of the Old Testament worship practices, that you just stand in awe of things like ornaments encased in pure gold, the rare jewels adorning the chest of the high priest, the, the countless burnt sacrifices and aroma before God, chapter after chapter, uh, details, instructions for building, embellishing, and beautifying the house of worship. But there's a gospel simplicity when Christ comes, and the gospel simplicity that replaces all of that ceremonial performance is the message of salvation through faith in God's final word to man, who is Jesus Christ. Hmm. He is infinitely more beautiful than gold or jewels. So Christ's sacrificial death on the cross has obtained an eternal redemption for his people, making him a mediator 
of a new covenant. And before there was trepidation, now there is boldness. We can come boldly before the throne of grace. Before there was slavery to the law, now there is liberty in Christ. Before there was complexity, you know, the high priest could only enter behind the veil once a year and all these rules and regulations as books like Numbers and Leviticus and Deuteronomy talk about. All of that was complex. Now there is simplicity. Worshippers are now free to come before the throne of grace, bypassing the old way, having an access to a better way. Paul said in Ephesians 2 that through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father, so that we are no longer strangers and aliens, but we are now fellow citizens and saints and members of the household of God. And so this beautiful gospel simplicity of worship frees us to worship truly in spirit and in truth. Mm. Amen, brother. Amen. Amen. What what encouragement and advice do you have for faithful expository preachers to continue to grow in their skill and handling of God's word? Well, to be a, a faithful pastor and faithfully beautify the church, one's heart must be in, in rhythm with the heart of Christ, both privately and publicly. Uh, there's no room for error in doctrine or theology or failure in holiness. And so preeminently, we have to grow in holiness as leaders of the church. Uh, we have to take care of our own hearts. We have to repent of sin. We have to confess sin. We have to, to seek others' forgiveness. We have to, to, to do all those things that would be preeminent in us being sanctified and conformed to the image of Christ. Secondly, we have to carefully shape and craft our skills to preach sermons that are thoroughly biblical, theological, and practically applied to the lives of our hearers. We need good readers, good readers of church history, of theology, and the like. We need compassionate men who are willing to go into the community, get to know their people on a very personal and applicational level. We need, to, we need pastors that love their people. They, they, they don't disdain the people. There's so many people that serve the church because they love Christ, but they don't love the sheep. No, our ministry is the sheep. And so we have to love the sheep. And so th this is a way that we can hone and finally tune and craft our preaching. Be thoroughly biblical, seek holiness, love your people. Mm, that's really good, brother. Why is walking worthy in our day and hour the most critical element in this critical hour, as you say, for Christians? Well, I, I cover um, walking worthy, which is an injunction from the Apostle Paul um, in the book in a, in a later chapter, because I think it's so necessary to know what that means. And that is simply this, a life characterized by spirit-led walking. And a life that is spirit-led is continuously concerned with growing in Christ-likeness. And that means several things. Having our minds saturated with the truth of God's word, having our hearts enraptured in perpetual doxological praise, giving our lives in service to love and help our neighbors, glorifying the Lord in all things. 
Uh, that's just a small list of what all walking in the spirit looks like and means. And so to walk in the spirit is to manifest a life patterned after our perfect example, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. It's his life who, who we constantly desire to emulate and to mirror. Uh, Paul said in Philippians 3, being found in him, not having a righteousness of our own that comes from the law, but that which comes by faith in Christ, the righteousness from God depends on faith. And so that, that's what it means to walk by the Spirit. Now, if you read the epistles of the Apostle Paul, the letters of Paul, you see that he talks about this again and again and again. Walk faithfully. Walk uprightly. Stand up. Run diligently. He even goes from walking to running. Run your race well. And so there's all these beautiful metaphorical um, illustrations of what it looks like to be spirit-led, but that's just simply being conformed to Christ's likeness in our sanctification. Mm, so good, so good. I think I think one other thing is just think about how faithful the Lord has been to us. You mm. know, He doesn't have to be faithful to us. Mm. Um, you know, we are we are often faithless. We struggle with unbelief. We walk in our own power and our own sufficiency. Um, you know, I certainly am guilty of that. But mm. God is still faithful. He's still faithful. Mm. He yeah. walks with us. He never changes. Hebrews uh, thirteen five and nine, and just just that thought alone should stir your affections. Right? It should stir your affections, and that should lead you to thankfulness. And you know, sometimes I often uh, recently have been thinking about that. Just just how faithful he is, how good he is. And that that just warms my heart, encourages my heart, reminds me of God's faithfulness. And, you know, even if he, however he's using you, um, you know, that should that should stir your heart to thankfulness mm. too, that, that you mm -hmm. have the privilege to be used by God in whatever capacity, whatever role, whatever, whatever impact that you're having, whether whether that's you have a, a large ministry or you're just faithfully plodding along and you maybe have 30 people in the church, you're, you still have a significant difference. And mm. I would just say that there's no quantification in the New Testament of, of just how much you, how many people you have to reach. Jesus had right 12 people that he poured into for, for, you know, three and a half years and, and God used those 12 men to change the world. So even if you mm. have 12 people in your church, God can use you. Even if you have two people, God can still use you. If you have two people on social media following, yeah, just be faithful, you know, just mm. don't worry so much about the numbers and the, mm. <coughs> excuse me, the platform, uh, just, mm. just be faithful. Like mm. you're saying, walk, be focus on your character and, and uh, you know, God will, use that. He will use you. Mm. Absolutely. Um, I, I think one of the areas that we see his faithfulness so evident in is not only does the Holy Spirit empower the church, but the Holy Spirit at the moment of our salvation comes and takes up residence within the lives of his people who make up the church. So not only are we outwardly empowered by the Holy Spirit, but we are inwardly conformed to the image of Christ by the Holy Spirit. So when Paul says, walk by the Spirit, he's also saying that the Spirit will animate and help you do these things. In other words, 
I'm not meant to love my neighbor by myself. No, it's the spirit through me that's loving my neighbor. I'm not meant to serve the people of my church by and in my own power. No, it's the Holy Spirit within me that reaches out to serve and uh, by his power that I am accomplishing these things. And so that just obviously demonstrates his faithfulness to us. He doesn't leave us on our own, but he gives us. He gives us himself through the presence of the Holy Spirit uh, to beautify the church and make her lovely. Amen, brother. Well, I love this story about John Hopper. How, how can that story encourage us as, as Christians as we prepare for or are facing persecution? Yeah, well, John, just such a great example, uh, just one among so many others who gave their lives in church history for the cause of truth. And refuse to bow down or do anything contrary uh, to what they believe Scripture taught. The Apostle Paul was deeply persuaded that conflict would be inevitable between a church composed of those living righteously and those in the world who like to revel in their ungodliness. There's going to be conflict. There's going to be an issue there. There's an undeniable tension between light and darkness. Unless we think the church is immune to or exempt from persecutions and sufferings in our modern age, Paul reminds us, no, 2 Timothy 3 verse 12, I think, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Not if, but will. In other words, we need to remind ourselves of these godly examples that have went before us for the cause of truth and seek to imitate them. Every faithful believer who is faithful to Christ must expect persecution. Not that every believer will be tortured and imprisoned or asked to recant or even burned at the stake, but you will experience at one point or another opposition from the world. Now, what does that mean for the church? It means that the church is composed of those whom the world despises. Stop trying to be liked by the world. You are not going to be liked by the world. The world hates you because the world hates Christ. There may be a facade of friendliness and desire for cooperation, but in the recesses of the heart of the ungodly, there is a vehement hatred for the things of God and the good news of the gospel. And so we have to learn to be faithful. And stories like the martyrs that have went before us, um, all the, the men and women during the Protestant Reformation, as well as during the Puritan era who were imprisoned, John Bunyan, who was in prison, for instance, uh, John Rogers, who was killed at the stake, uh, Hugh Latimer and uh, Nicholas Ridley, who were burned at the stake in Oxford, and so many others who have spilled their blood for the sake of the gospel is a reminder to us that we need to remain faithful. And so in a book that's about beauty and loveliness, why in the world would I have included a chapter about persecution? Well, it's through suffering that we learn from Job. He is so, he, Job said, though he hath tried me, I shall come forth as purest gold. And so it's through persecution, through opposition from the world that Christ makes us beautiful. Mm, yeah, and we're, we're definitely seeing that all over the world. In you know Russia, in Asia, in Eastern Europe, um, mm. in Canada, I mean, right across our borders, it's not that far from 
maybe, maybe I think it's, let's see, I got to think seven, eight hours from where I live, you know, right across the border we're we're seeing it and it's, it's coming. Are we, are we ready? Are we ready to stand up? Um, it's a, it's a question mm. that I think we really, really have to, as American Christians ask ourselves and we have to, I think, repent because I don't know that we're ready. And so we have to get our, well, it's, ready. it's been this case, hasn't it? In every era of church history, the world is never like the church uh, because we are in opposition to everything that they want to do, everything they want to say and everything they want to be. And so in other words, we are an indictment on their ungodly lifestyles. And so that's why they hate us so desperately because they're hating Christ rather than us. And so we just need to look at these examples. Go into Hebrews 11 and read about those who were sawn in two, those who were placed on the rack, those who were torn in two, those who were eaten by lions, those who had to depart into the hillsides uh, because of persecution that was coming so vehemently against the church. And so it's such an obvious reminder that we have to be ready at any moment when that persecution and opposition actually comes. So good, brother. So good. Well, where can people go to find out more about you, either on social media or or otherwise? Tell us about your podcast, too. Um, all those things, brother. Yeah, so I'm kind of on the social, basic social media platforms. Um, Twitter, uh, you can look for me. Just type in my first name and last name. I should come up there. Uh, Dustin Benge, B-E-N-G-E. Uh, I'm on Instagram as well, but you add a middle initial W uh, in the middle of my name and you should be able to find me there. Uh, I'm on Facebook, of course, under the same name. I do have a a short devotional podcast that airs every Tuesday and Thursday called Walking Worthy, uh, about five, six to eight minutes or so of some devotional thoughts that I hope encourage believers as they're getting ready for the day or they're on their way to work or uh, what, you know, running or exercising, whatever the case may be. Um, Just a a small glimpse into the scriptures uh, to encourage them for their day. Uh, that's called Walking Worthy. You can find that on all major podcast platforms. Type in my name on Amazon. There'll be a few a few things come up. Uh, the Loveliest Place, you'll see that. That's also available in audiobook. There's a smaller, uh, kind of more condensed version of this book uh, that's coming out next month called Why Should I Love the Local Church? Uh, that's also from Crossway and will be available uh, to you very soon. So, so those are just a few of the areas that that yeah, I'm kind of in, and uh, you can look me up, and and I would appreciate you following through with that. And you'll be very blessed by following my dear friend uh, Dustin on all the socials and following his podcast, uh, brother. You're one of the most uh, thoughtful, um, caring brothers I know, and and you're also as I said, very brilliant. So, Well, I I very much appreciate that, Dave, and appreciate your uh, friendship and conversation. And um, we've talked about these things before, and I knew you were excited for this book to be released. And so uh, it's good to finally talk to you about it. Yeah, brother. Well, just as we wrap up, do you want to give us some takeaways? Yeah, I think um, the takeaway would simply be this. It's the purpose of why I wrote this. And that would be to strive to shift your perspective of the way you view the church. 
uh, shift your perspective from yourself, your wants, your your likes, your dislikes, your opinions, your uh, whatever the case would be, and shift it to a Trinitarian lens and see the church as God sees the church, as Christ sees the church, as the Spirit sees the church. And I think that will revolutionize the way you view the church, the way you worship, the way you read the scriptures. Um, and um, I just, I think it, it has really helped me um, in this era of which we're living when there's so many things going on within the church, division and disunity and all the rest, uh, to really reshift my focus and awaken my affection and just hear the words of Christ and his promise, I will build my church period. Not I might build my church or maybe I'll build my church or if my people are faithful, I'll build my church or when circumstances are perfect, I'll build my church. No, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not stop me. And so that's what I want to be a part of. That's what I want to serve. That's what I want to do is to give my life for his purpose, which is to build and beautify the church. Amen, brother. Amen. Well, guys, today we've been talking with my dear friend and brother, Dustin Benj, about his new book, The Loveliest Place, The Beauty and Glory of the Church. It's available where other books are sold. I encourage you to go get it and to follow my brother on social media. You'll be blessed by the book and by following him as he follows Christ. So thank you guys for listening or watching this episode of Equipping You in Grace. And Dustin, thank you for joining us, brother. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to the Equipping You and Grace podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, rate us on the app, and share this with your friends and family on social media. If you want to find us on social media, you can find us on Twitter at Servants of Grace, on Instagram at Servants of Grace, or by searching at Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this episode and many others like it on the front page of our website, servantsofgrace.org.